reading God's word this morning, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1. read this in connection with the instruction of the Hedeberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, which teaches us about the humiliation of Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. And so as we read through Philippians 1, I encourage you to look for instruction from God's word about death. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, 
having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. That ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of Philippians 1 and many other passages of Scripture that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, found on page 10 in the back of the Psalter. Question 40, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because, with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, or that by power, the power thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and fully comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question 
that we consider this morning is the question given to us in uh, question answer 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism, why must we die? Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? This question can be considered from two different points of view. It can be considered from the perspective of faith, but it also can be considered from the perspective of unbelief. It's not just Christians who ask the question, why must we die? But it's also unbelievers who ask the question, why must we die? we die. They ask the question, afraid of death. They ask the question, likely angry, that there is death and that they are powerless to stop death. The unbeliever, desperate to find a way to soften the hard and cruel edge of death, comes up with theories as to how death might be used for good. The evolutionist comforts himself with this thought that, at least in my passing away, with the generation that follows me, there will be some advancement. There is some development from one generation to the next. And so over the course of history, as one generation passes away and the next generation takes its place, there is continual, albeit slow, but continual gradual development so that the next generation that follows after me will improve upon and go further than what the present generation is able to do. And so the evolutionist comforts himself with the fact that although he must die and although he cannot stave off death, at least there is this hope that those who follow me are going to live a better life than what I was able to die, able to live. Why must we die? But the other way in which we consider this question And the way in which you and I consider this question this morning is from the perspective of faith. And faith is shaped by the Word of God. Why must we die? We turn not to evolution for the answer of why we must die, but we turn to the Word of God as to why we must die. And faith changes our perspective toward death. Faith gives unto me the confidence that death is not the end, but that death is a passageway into life everlasting. Faith gives to me the ability to have comfort that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and fully comfort myself in this 
that my Lord Jesus Christ has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. By faith, we say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why must we die? We use question and answer 42 to answer that first, not to satisfy Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. Second, but to abolish. Death is only an abolishing of sin. And then third, and to enter. That's why we must die, to enter. For death is a passage into eternal life. Why must we die? Not to satisfy, but to abolish and to enter. For us to understand why we must die, we must first have clear before our minds what is death and why there is found on this earth the reality of death. Death can be found around us so commonly and so frequently that we hardly even take the time to consider the dreadful reality of death. We see it outside at this time of year as the seasons change from spring into, or from summer into the fall time. And as there is the change of colors of the leaves on the trees, as they go from the green changing to the orange, the red, and then the brown, and then those leaves dead, fall down off of the trees. And we hardly even think about it when the leaves fall off of the trees because in our minds that's simply part of the cycle of life. There is death all around us. It's not just the leaves of the trees that die, but there is in creation the animals, countless animals that die. And we as parents teach our children that It's okay to eat this meat of the animal. This animal gave up its life. This animal died in order that we can enjoy the meat from this animal so that our lives can be sustained. But because there is death all around us and death is so common to us, we can, it is possible then for us to conceive of death, to think of death in a way that is not shaped according to the word of God. And the temptation is this, beloved. We can think of death as simply being that which belongs to the natural order of things upon this earth. Sometimes the world even speaks of it that way, that this is nature doing what nature does. That's why animals die, because this is nature. And that type of thinking can be start to impact us, where we begin to think, well, this is simply what happens upon this earth. There is this natural passing away of things so that then new life can come forth and replace that which was old and that which has expired upon this earth. But the Word of God teaches unto us something quite different about death. 
Death is not natural to this earth. Death did not always belong to the way that things were carried out upon this earth. But instead, the Word of God teaches us that death is an expression of the wrath of God. That's what death is. It's the expression of a just and holy God. As that holy God comes into contact with sin and brokenness upon this earth. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Before Adam and Eve partook of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, there was no death. Adam and Eve, had they not partaken of that fruit, would have lived forever there in the Garden. But it was because they broke God's commandment and became sinners and thus guilty in God's sight, that then God reached down from heaven and God sent death into the Garden of Eden. Death is not natural, but death, we might say, is an unnatural invasion into this earth. Death is a violent interruption of the way that things were created in the beginning to be carried out upon this earth. You understand this, that death is the expression of the wrath of God against the sins of mankind. Because of that, death hurts. Death is painful. When the hand of God reaches into your home and takes a loved one out of that home through death, it hurts and it's grievous. And with overwhelming grief, we weep. The world does everything in its power to try to take that sting of death and remove it, pluck that sting out. Does everything that it can to soften the hard and cruel edges of death. Even the way in which services are conducted for the deceased individual shows the attempts of the world Try to soften the blow of death. Instead of the caskets being up front, open, before the congregation and before the grieving family, another casket is kept in the back, generally closed, so you don't have to see the cold, hard reality of death. Take flowers, put the flowers on the casket, decorate at the cemetery, 
attempt to take away that cold, hard reality of death. Even the name of the service is changed. Instead of calling it a funeral, call it a memorial service. Instead of saying this person died, soften it by saying this person passed away. These things are not wrong in and of themselves, beloved. It's not wrong to do that. But you understand what these are. These are attempts to take away some of the bitterness, some of the grief, that sting of death. But ultimately, man stands powerless before the grave. The best doctors, the best physicians cannot stave off death ultimately. And nobody on this earth can take the dead and raise the dead to life again. Why? Because death is the expression of the wrath of God. For the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Why then must we die? We cannot consider the necessity of our own death apart from considering the necessity of the death of our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself unto death? Jesus Christ, as he hanged upon that cross, died. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and he died. And that Jesus Christ died means, beloved, that Jesus Christ experienced everything that it means to die. Through death. Man's place and man's position upon this earth comes to an end. It could be that a man was a very important and influential and powerful individual upon this earth. It could be that man was respected by a great number of people and that so many followed this man and looked up to the man and respected the man. But at the time of death, the position and the place of man upon this earth comes to a sudden and an abrupt end. Man might be considered to be irreplaceable, indispensable, but the grave shows otherwise. Every single person upon this earth can be replaced by someone else. And no one can stop that grave from taking us. What is death? At the moment of death, beloved, we lose our ability to experience, to live upon this earth. It's through our body that we experience and live on this earth. It's through the sense of touch that we feel this earth, through our eyes that we behold this earth, through the nose that we smell the sense that God has given to us on this earth through our ears that we are able to hear 
even the voice of Jesus Christ as he speaks to us through the preaching, but at the time of death, all of those senses come to an end. Man no longer has a place upon this earth by which he can experience and live on this earth. And if that's true for us, beloved, at the time of death, it is likewise true for Jesus Christ. And at the moment of the death of Jesus, Jesus lost his ability. The only speaking here lost his ability to sense this earth. No longer could eat, taste, smell, touch, see, or hear. But he died. At death, there is a rending apart, a separation of the body and of the soul. The soul goes to its place of eternal destiny, but the body goes down to that grave, the corrupt grave, where the worms attack the body, eat the body, and the body returns to the dust from whence it came. If that's what death is, that's what Jesus experienced. His body went to the corruption of the grave and worms began to do their work of eating his body. He died. But why did Jesus why was it necessary that the Son of God die? Because, answer 40, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Jesus Christ, gave up his life on that cross in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins that we owe, that we have committed against God. 1 John 2, verse 2, And he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ experienced all those things that it means to die. He experienced the rending apart of body and soul. Jesus Christ experienced what it means to no longer be able to live in and experience the things of this earth. He gave up the ability to eat and taste and live here below. Why? So that He could die in your place. He died as your substitute upon that accursed cross. It was the only way in which Jesus Christ could redeem His people from their sins. There was no other option for Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ would be our Savior, if Jesus Christ would be the one who would open up the door so that we could join our Father in heaven, it was necessary that Jesus Christ go the way of 
death. It was not possible for Jesus Christ simply to suffer all of his life long. It was not possible for Jesus Christ simply to live in poverty. For Jesus simply to be rejected by family and by friends. It was not possible for Jesus Christ simply to receive an innocent condemnation. To be unjustly condemned to death. But in addition to all of those things, it was necessary that Jesus Christ himself die. And he had to die willfully. Giving up his own life at the cross. Why was it necessary that Jesus Christ die? Because of what we have already said. Death is the expression of the wrath of God. And it was necessary that Jesus Christ face the wrath of God for the sins which you and I have committed. The justice of God required that payment for sin be made by drinking that cup of God's eternal wrath. And the truth of God demanded that that satisfaction for sin be made in no other way than the same way that God had said in the beginning. If God said to Adam and Eve in the garden that the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die, then that truth of God remained up until the time that Jesus came to this earth. And that truth of God demanded that if Jesus Christ became a sinner in the sight of God, then Jesus must die. And so He did. He gave up His life there at the cross in order that the wrath of God might be removed from us and placed on Him. And He did so perfectly. There's no sin left outstanding on your account. So then the question remains, why must we die? If Jesus did it all, if there is no sin for which satisfaction must yet be made, if every bit of guilt has been removed, then why must we die? It is not, beloved, in order that we must make satisfaction for the wrath of God. We must not view death that way. That God is angry with me. And because God is angry with me, God is now going to punish me. And the way that He's going to punish me is someday He's going to take my life away from me. That is not why Christians die. For the satisfaction has been made in full. But positively, why must we die? testimony of the catechism is that we die so that our sins might be abolished. 
Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin. The word sin here that the catechism speaks of is to be understood generally. Sin in every sense of the word is abolished at the time of death. We may speak of sin as being my corrupt nature, that disease that I have inherited from my parents. We confess our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are children of wrath. We all have this within us, this will that comes into the world, not neutral, neither good nor evil, but we have a will or a nature that comes into this world and that that nature is corrupt, that nature is bent against God. At death, that sinful nature is abolished. But then also we may speak of sin from the point of view of our actual sins. Sins that we commit with our hands, with our mouths, with our feet, walking to places where we ought not to go. Sins which are committed in our minds, coveting, lusting, having a desire of revenge, bitterness that rises up within us. And though we fight against these sinful temptations and though we hate these sins, we cannot in this lifetime overcome those sins. And then as well, we may speak of the guilt of sin. Not just my sinful nature, not just that I commit sins, but now I'm guilty those sins. I'm ashamed. The psalmist speaks of the burden of guilt. In Psalm 32, he expresses in the lament that it's as if his bones are being broken with the weight of the guilt of his sins. The guilt of sins which keeps a person awake at nighttime, tossing and turning, a sense of shame that they've committed such a gross and ungodly deed. Beloved, the more we come to see our nature, our sins that we commit, and as well the guilt that we have because of those sins, the more eager we the more eagerness that we have to be delivered from this earth and to be taken to be in heaven, that our sins might be abolished. Sin is a great and a heavy burden upon us as Christians. We don't always immediately recognize, in fact, we never immediately recognize how sinful we are The youthful person retains some optimism about the future. The youthful 
person looks forward to the future and is excited about what can happen next week and next month and next year. But then as we age and as we hear the Word of God come to us again and again, God uses that Word to expose unto us how corrupt and how sinful we are. And so the elderly saint, beholding his sins with much more clarity than what he beheld in his youth, is grieved by those sins and looks forward to the day when he can be delivered from this earthly tabernacle. His attitude toward death is changed. It is no longer the attitude of, I must die, though that is the case, but it is this now, I may die. There will come a time where I may die, will die, and God will take me off of this earth so that I no longer have to fight against those sins. The Catechism says that at the moment at its death, sin is abolished, an abolishing of sin. To abolish means to eradicate to wipe out entirely. There's a picture of, of this idea of abolishing given unto us in the Old Testament Israelites when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and God took them through the Red Sea. And the children remember that Pharaoh and his army pursued the Israelites, chased the Israelites out of Egypt, caught up to them at the Red Sea, and then when God delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his hosts went down into the sea, and then God closed the waters back down upon Pharaoh and his army so that the horse and the rider were overthrown in the sea, drowned there, and entirely eradicated and wiped out. So that then when the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River looked back, upon the Red Sea that had enclosed upon them, upon the Egyptians, there no longer was that threat of the Egyptian army. And that's a picture, beloved, of what God does for us at death. God, as it were, takes our sinful nature and the sins which we have committed, as well as the guilt which is ours because of those sins. And God takes those sins and He abolishes those sins. He casts them down into the depths of the sea so that they never again will rise up against us. Oh, how the Christian longs to be delivered from this earth and to be taken into heaven when at last he no longer has to fight against that threefold enemy. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. For as long as I am on this earth, I am to live even as Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ, the perfect office bearer, prophet, priest, and king. 
For me to live is Christ. That is, for me to live is to live as a prophet and as a priest and as a king upon this earth. And as king, I am called to rule over myself. And I am to fight against that corrupt nature that I have. I am to exercise dominion over the corrupt desires that rise up out of me. For me to live is Christ. But how wearisome and how much toil it takes to fight against that corrupt nature. And so it is to die is gain. There's something better that awaits us at the moment of death. And that something better is I can rest from fighting. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For as long as we are on this earth, God calls us to fight. We may not have a fatalistic approach. We may not say, well, wait till the moment of death and then God will take me to heaven and then I'll be perfect then, but for as long as I'm on this earth, I can live however I want. No, God calls us to fight while we live on this earth. To fight even all all the way up until the end. And as we get closer to the end, it can become increasingly difficult to be patient. God takes away our abilities so that the body becomes weak in old age, the mind becomes confused in the elderly state, and we feel as if we are no longer needed upon this earth. It can be the temptation of the elderly saint who wish that God would take them off of this earth now. Why must I wait? Why must I remain here yet upon this earth? Paul understood that struggle. Paul spoke of it in verses 23 and 24 of Philippians 1. For I am in a strait betwixt two. He's in a position, hard spot between two positions. On the one hand, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. The Apostle Paul understood that God had a reason for keeping him on this earth. It was more needful for the saints that Paul remain on this earth for a while. Elderly saints who long to be delivered, may God give you the same confidence that was given to the Apostle Paul that this time it is more needful for you to remain upon this earth and that for the benefit of the church. As they see your example, as they see your faith, as they see your humility and your waiting upon God, 
you are used by God for the good of his church. It is more needful for the church that you remain here below for a while. But then, at last, at the time of death, God opens up the door and God gives us to enter eternal life. Why must we die? Death is not a satisfaction for sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. And again, we see this passageway into eternal life typified by the Old Testament Israelites as they concluded their wilderness wanderings, approached the Jordan River. Again, God opened up that body of water They crossed that Jordan River and they entered into the land of rest and the land of promise. They did not immediately enter that land of rest and promise, but for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, living a nomadic lifestyle, dependent, entirely dependent upon God. They would have perished out there in the wilderness, had it not been for God who sustained them. He gave unto them water from the rock. He gave unto them manna from heaven. He gave unto them the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to direct them and to lead them in the way in which they were to go. Without God helping them, sustaining them, providing for them, in the wilderness, they all would have perished, every last one of them there in that wilderness. But God sustained them. God brought them to the Jordan River, and the Lord in his mercy gave unto them that land of promise. And so it is, beloved, for you and for me. For as long as we are in this wilderness, we, the wilderness of this earth, We recognize and confess that we are entirely dependent upon God. We need Him to sustain us in our bodies as well as in our souls. But God in His grace sustains us until at last He brings us to that Jordan River, which is death. And God opens up the Jordan River. And God brings us through so that we enter into the land. There the Israelites had houses full of all good things, which houses they had not filled. They had wells digged, which they had not dug themselves. They had vineyards and olive trees, which they had not planted themselves. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so it will be for us as God takes us into heaven. Joy, satisfaction, and a home which we have not personally built, but which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has built. He prepares a mansion In that mansion, there is a room for every one of his beloved bride. 
he gave up his life at Calvary so that death can be transformed. We do not fear death, but death is a passage way. And the love of God is this, that we are not left alone as we go through that passageway. We need not fear what will happen at the moment of death. How frightening that would be if we had to go through death alone. But we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ who goes with us. And Jesus knows what it is to die. He experienced it in fullness. And His Spirit will sustain you as he takes your soul and delivers your soul into that heavenly home. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank thee for thy word of comfort, that the sting of death has been removed through thy Son, Jesus Christ. Thou give unto us the confidence that Thou who hast begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.